You're listening to Amphibicast. This week's episode of Amphibicast is sponsored by the Active Conservation Alliance. The Active Conservation Alliance is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization promoting ecosystem conservation and restoration, the sustainable use and the welfare for wildlife and human communities living in balance. With a special focus on dart frogs, many of the Alliance's efforts work towards the conservation and reintroduction of wild dendrobatids into their natural habitat. To get involved and to donate, please visit activeconservationalliance.org or follow the links in the show description. You can also text ACA to 61094. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for joining me again. This week, I have a great guest. I mean, as, as always, I always think I have great guests. I have Dr. Gary Butcherelli, and he has worked on some studies involving UV lighting and perch selection with dart frogs. And he's also done some extensive research in California on California newt species. And we're going to talk about a great number of topics. I went through a whole bunch of his papers and I've got a lot of questions for him. But um, of course, before we get into that, you know, the usual stuff, thanks everybody who supports the show. Uh, All the patrons, if you want to support the show by becoming a a patron on Patreon, great way to do so. I've got tiers as low as a dollar a month, up to $5 a month. And that'll get you a shout out at the beginning of an upcoming episode. And for everything else, just check out the link tree in the show description. It'll take you to the merch store if you want to get some cool frog swag. Uh, you'll also find a link to In-Situ Ecosystems if you want to get 10% off your purchase of a nice In-Situ Ecosystems vivarium. Make the purchase through that link, you'll get 10% off. And you'll also find a link to our sponsor, Active Conservation Alliance. Uh, the Active Conservation Alliance is an organization that does a tremendous amount of conservation in South America, specifically geared towards dart frogs. So if you'd like to support conservation for dart frogs, be sure to check out the show's sponsor, Active Conservation Alliance. And uh, I think I've covered all the usual grounds. Gary, welcome. How are you doing tonight? Thank you for, um, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. Excited to join you. It's my pleasure. And um, I mean, just so everyone knows at this point, um, this show is going to air a little bit, but Gary's coming to us from some bad weather in, uh, in California. So I, I really want to thank you for, um, <laughs> for taking the time. I know the weather out there, we were talking before the weather out there has just been terrible, but uh, thank you for making some time for us. Of course. So uh, I'd like to get into some of your research, but I'd like to hear a little bit about yourself first. Uh, why don't you tell us what was your story? What were some of your earliest experiences with amphibians like, and what led you to where you are today? Well, I grew up in Pennsylvania, western Pennsylvania, very rural part of the state, and my grandparents actually had a cabin in the Allegheny National Forest. So a lot of my time was spent there in the spring and summers, and I was an outdoors kind of kid. I was always in creeks and streams and ponds. And when I was in the Allegheny National Forest, I was always finding these tiny little orange newts. And we knew they were newts, but didn't really know anything about their natural history or uh, species name or anything like that. Um, but those were Eastern red spotted newts and that genus Nothalmus has a weird life stage, uh, that's called an EFT, E-F-T. And that EFT stage is like in between when they are, uh, a larva and, and sexually mature adult. So it's like a juvenile stage, but it's unique because they have totally different, 
um, characteristics from the adult. So they're like bright, bright orange with bright red spots. Beautiful. And so that was kind of my entryway into uh, amphibians. And coincidentally, the streams that ran through the the camp that my grandparents had, small streams, uh, they had crayfish in them too. So I was out looking for crayfish early on in in my childhood, and that's carried over into my adult career too. Yeah, the Alleghenies is a beautiful place. I'd love to. I've only seen photographs, but I can only imagine how breathtaking it must be. Yeah, it was pretty incredible. So why study amphibians? Why devote so much of your time to studying, I mean, especially caudates, but amphibians in general? Why, yeah. why study them? What's so important? Well, amphibians are a very uh, special group of organisms. They have certainly some of the most fascinating features of organisms. One being, uh, for me, most important, the, the poisons that they have. So a defining trait of amphibians is that they have poison glands. And that's really an unstudied realm of amphibians, generally speaking. So it's an exciting sort of forefront, if you will. The other thing that's important to think about with amphibians is we know very little about their terrestrial ecology. So many species um, are only really able to be studied and, and found when they're in the water breeding. Most of the other time, we don't know where they go, what they do, um, what they're eating when they're on land. Um, that's the case for a huge number of amphibians. And then also, amphibian species are declining globally. Population numbers are precipitously going down. And What's crucial about that is that there's really no smoking gun, and that's to say that we don't really understand what's causing these declines. It's not the same thing um, in the same way for every species. So amphibians are being stressed by a number of different um, variables, like uh, you can use an umbrella term, climate change, so drought and uh, increased wildfire frequency, but there's also pesticide exposure, there's pathogen outbreaks, um, emergent pathogen outbreaks like B-sal, um, there's loss of habitat, and all of these things actually interact in different ways uh, for different species. So it really leads us to this sort of regional approach for protecting amphibians, which I like because it means you get to engage community. You get to engage the people that are local and care about species locally and work with them to develop uh, conservation solutions. You know, it's interesting you mentioned the 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 life cycle of amphibians, especially caudates, I guess. I'm, yeah. I don't know why they keep coming to me, but yeah, you're right. Yeah. I mean, nobody really knows much about where they go during the rest of the time. I mean, I, I read, <laughs> I'd, I'd read something somewhere and you, you, you tell me if this is true or not. I read something somewhere that the, the biomass of terrestrial salamanders is actually, well, is supposed to be anyway, under normal circumstances, very, very high. Mm -hmm. And yeah. yet you never seem to see them. Is there, is there truth to that? 
Oh, I'm sure. I just was speaking with someone uh, who's, who works on this thing called a newt brigade. Do you know about these? No. It's the, it's the group of folks that they go out on, on wet uh, winter nights and they, they actually help transport uh, newts and other amphibians across roads so they don't get hit by cars. So like a lot of amphibians actually die because they get run over while they're trying to make it back to breeding habitat during winter storms. And especially here in California, and this group has dedicated their time to uh, making sure that (laughs) amphibians are crossing the road safely. It's amazing. And what they told me was one one winter uh, night, they helped 4,500 juvenile newts cross the road. 4,500. That's a tremendous amount of biomass. I mean, and that's just one evening. Um, and there are other stories from other parts of the Bay Area where, unfortunately, they're documenting the loss as well. And there were, you know, hundreds of individuals that were um, actually run over in a single evening. So it speaks to two things. It speaks first to your biomass point. There are a lot of newts, but it also speaks to the point that um, we have a conservation issue, that we have a challenge to protecting this species and amphibians generally, and we can do things locally to help them. I think I remember seeing something about, I don't remember if it was newts. I think it might've been some, it was one of the mole salamander species. I can't remember if it was a spotted mm. salamander. I think it was in Massachusetts or something like that. And they actually closed the road during, I think it's a couple of days in March or something like that to, to facilitate something very, very similar. There's apparently like a mass migration. Yeah. Yeah. This is becoming quite popular. And I know uh, colleagues of mine have worked in Long Island to actually do this with tiger salamanders in uh, your stomping grounds, your neck of the woods, and have actually shut down roads and and done similar efforts to help protect uh, these migrating individuals. Yeah, I think I've heard of that. I don't know the exact person. I have to I have to look into that because I'm I'm trying to get some um, some hometown talent on this show because there's yeah. a lot of people on the island and in the new york area who who do a tremendous amount for uh research and conservation um yeah that's, i i have to develop that so uh, it's something i gotta get on for another another show yeah 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 because we have our our amphibian population here on the island is a little a little odd and i've i've had uh-huh. i've had i had um a while back i had um Trying to remember his name because it was like one of the earliest shows I did. Um, what was his name? I think it was was it Friedman. Um, anyway, it doesn't matter. But the point is, like we were talking about leopard frogs in Staten Island, and how that population has got its own dynamics. And uh, yeah, I mean, out here, it's just like the 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 urban sprawl has really really <laughs> taken over so much. And anytime I do find a frog, it's pretty impressive. But it's usually either an American bullfrog or yeah. a spring peeper or occasionally, I haven't even seen much in the way of American toads in years, but our, wow. bio, our biomass is really, 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 you know, kind of disintegrated. I'm fortunate enough to work on a, a length of pro- a section of property that's, that's protected and has been pretty mm. much for about, you know, almost the past hundred years. And I actually found a, um, 
I think it was a redback salamander about two years wow. ago in a um, in a water meter pit about four feet below <laughs> ground. And I just I sat there and I'm I'm watching it just on top of this water meter. And I'm like, and that just to get back to my point earlier, I'm like. No one but me yeah. would be down here doing this right now. <laughs> and I can well, only... it's a... Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was like, I can only imagine how many people are actually looking for these things, let alone actually finding them. Right, right. Uh, it, it was worth noting that I have a colleague at UCLA. His name is Yosha Beninde, who's been working on an urban biodiversity project. And he has found that the water sprinkler sort of... Um, uh, I guess they're like, he has a particular term for them, but it's like where all of the irrigation um, materials are, like the clockwork and and the wiring and everything. They actually are reservoirs for snails and amphibians in urban environments. Yeah. Which is pretty sense. fascinating. Yeah, they're they're kind of finding this artificial habitat to to make a good go of it under not the best circumstances. You know, that's another thing I, I I have encountered in the past. And at my, you know, the job I worked at for a long time was actually was, did a lot of sewer work. And a lot of times we were opening up these covers on, on you know, sewer pits and the frogs would just f- like fly out of these things. It was, inc- I mean, I felt mm. bad because it wasn't the best, you know, conditions, but yeah, it, it was it was just this little microhabitat, and that's that's. I never knew anybody was studying that. That's really fascinating. Yeah, yeah, he is, and uh, those irrigation boxes, let's call them that, uh, tend to hold a lot of uh, good habitat. I mean, I think at some level, some species don't care so much. They're not as fussy, right? And they'll make use of what they can find that meets at least some of the requirements of their niche yeah it's i i I, i'm i mean it's it's terrible that things have been kind of reduced to these little fragmented areas of man-made yeah but um it's still it's still interesting as a behavior yeah yeah totally so i want to get into and it's it's actually it's an older paper but this was when i was kind of going through your research this was kind of the first thing because i'm kind of biased towards dendrobatids uh, <laughs> it's a good bias. It it is. It is. So the the paper is um, it's uh, from 2012. Ultraviolet radiation influences perch selection by a neotropical poison dart frog. And I'll tell yeah. you, I'll tell you in part. I mean, I'm general. I'm genuinely interested in all things that are dendrobatid. But one of the things that interests me is the behavior of. I mean, I think it was Ufaga Pamilio in here. Uh, in relation to the sun, because many of us in the hobby, uh, many of us who keep Ufaga species, and I'm um, not just Pamilio, but uh, you know, Lamani and uh, Histrionica, whatever, uh, a lot of us are interested in their natural behaviors and how that may affect breeding and captivity. And of course, there's this interest in UV lighting in captive situations, you know, and I've, I've always been really hungry to, to you know, really find out as much as I can about the role of UV radiation in breeding and in, in frogs, because there isn't a tremendous amount out there. I mean, I read through your paper and it's, it's actually pretty fascinating. Yeah. And I was pretty surprised. Yeah. Uh, can you walk us through from start to finish everything that you, that you found and, um, <laughs> and you know, it, floor is yours. Just tell us, tell us all about it. 
Well, let me give you a little background on this trip because that was my first time to Costa Rica as a research assistant for Dr. Lee Katz. And I was just blown away first and foremost because the the rainforest is as incredible as everybody always says it is or that you hear that it is. Um, there was no expectation not met and everything was generally over the top in terms of biodiversity, things that you would see, night hikes, uh, just incredible experience. So I was there working with a small team and our main question was how are, um, how are the, the male frogs, how are they affected by increases of ultraviolet radiation, which I'll just call UV going forward? How does UV um, affect their perch site uh, behaviors and how long they will call? And this was building off of a previous study that uh, a student had started where they had found that the the frogs the males were always calling under these sort of um, umbrellas so to speak so they would find foliage um over top in like a, a vine or something or a leaf of a of a small tree that they would call under and just to give everybody a little perspective about this species this is the strawberry poison frog and they're diurnal, which is unique in in some ways because most frogs are not diurnal. They're, they're calling at night, so they're nocturnal. And here they're, they're diurnal. They're calling throughout the day, and they're territorial. So they, they defend territories, and they also use these perches to attract females um they want to be seen by females so they go up on these perches to call so that they're visible to females and when they're at these elevated sites with the with the perch sites they actually are likely to experience more uv because they're not just on the ground um closer to cover under logs or under any sort of uh, canopy of sorts. So when they when they go up to these perches, which can be anywhere from um, a couple of centimeters to uh, half a meter or more off of the ground, there's a risk that they're going to experience more UV. And so that's what this paper was all about. That's what this study was all about, to see if we could actually manipulate um, UV levels and in doing so test if elevated UV caused them to abandon their perch sooner. And so we set out into the rainforest with our gear. We used these mylar films that um, filtered UV and then um, mylar film that had no UV filtering. Um, and basically we were able to uh, experimentally manipulate how much UV they were actually receiving by filtering it with the mylar. And then what we also did was we took UVB flashlights to increase UV radiation exposure. 
um, over calling frogs. You can actually get quite close to them. Again, they're territorial, so they don't want to um, abandon their perch if they don't have to. Um, so we were able to get close enough to these perches where we could um, increase the UV with the flashlights and then see if that affected the duration of their call. And largely what we found was that um, there's, there's, um, there's a certain level that they will tolerate. And once you exceed that exposure, they will abandon their, their perch. And, and there's consequences to that, right? Because UV um, has sublethal effects. It can have lethal effects too, but there's lots of studies that actually demonstrate how UV can have um, costs associated with it, including like DNA repair because UV exposure, just like humans, has consequences. You, you can um, cause mutations and those mutations can have consequence to your health, right? So frogs can experience the same thing. And so you have to have DNA repair. Um, so that's one cost. And the other cost, um, kind of more concretely, um, is that they give up the, the breeding site and they then have to possibly forego breeding, right? Or possibly not having as many breeding events or um, not being selected by the choosiest females. So there's, there's a balance there, right? And what we were ultimately able to see from our results was that there's a, there's a really fine line of how much UV they will tolerate and how long they will stay and tolerate that UV um, if it's elevated before they actually say, forget it and I'm out of here. So that was the study. Now, when you say they tolerated a certain amount of, of UV lighting, um, yeah, I, I have a couple, couple of, a couple of kind of follow-up questions. Yeah, number, sure. number one, like what was the, the, the time length? Meaning was this calling for a few seconds, calling for a few minutes? Like what was the, like the typical threshold in terms of how they could, how long they could stand calling at a higher UV, UV exposed perch? Yeah, so at a higher UV perch, um, they would abandon within seconds. Um, if you filtered out the UV, they would call for minute to minutes plus. We had some individuals that just stayed and didn't even move. And, you know, we had some variation in the data. There would be some individuals that um, you you put the UV there and they might stay 30 seconds or 45 seconds. But the general pattern was that on average, individuals that you gave um, doses, higher doses of UV to um, relative to controls, um, they were gone in, in seconds. There's just, it's too much. And we were, we were hitting them with levels that were not, you know, we're talking about, um, you know, very low levels here, like, 1.2 centimeters per microwatt squared. Like these are uh, these are low levels. If you go out into the, just to give you all perspective, if you go out and you measure what's the UV in like a in an open part of the rainforest um, with no tree cover and it's just direct sunlight, you're looking at like 
25, 30, 35, 40. It can be anywhere up to 50, depending on the conditions, microwatts per centimeter squared. Um, and we're elevating it to like 1.823, something like that, depending on how close we were. What we always did was we measured what the UV um, level was when we had the flashlight at the level that it was uh, above the individual. So we're we're not talking about blasting them with, you know, uh, these UV lights. These are pretty low levels, which means that they're really sensitive to even just small changes. And how do you think that they were able to tell the, the intensity? Because um, I'm, I'm reading the discussion here, but um, at the yeah. end of the paper, how did you, I mean, number one, I mean, there's UVB and there's UVA that was involved in the study, yeah. right? What, what was, were the two of them related? Did they avoid just general UV r radiation as a combination of the two? Or did you test the different ones? Or how did that dynamic work out? We tested primarily UVB. Um, that's the wavelength that the lights we had used. Um, and so the the idea there is that um, sensing, and, and this is merely speculative because like many things in the amphibian world, they're just really understudied. But we, we kind of thought of it like... Um, you know, when you're out in the sun and the sun feels really hot on your skin, you have the, a sensation that your skin is actually quite hot and it's possibly burning, right? Um, and that amphibians possibly have that same feeling with UV exposure. Um, when it gets too high and that threshold is crossed where it's comfortable, they're sensing that. But again, we don't really know for sure what the proximate mechanism is that's that's driving that response. Um, it's possible it could be um, driven by vision too. They might be able to see actually that the light is more intense and they aren't interested in that bright of uh, exposure. So they, they abandon. There's multiple mechanisms that could be at play. And those aren't mutually exclusive. Maybe it's both of them. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I mean, I've 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 talked to many people about just wild Ufaga pamilio and and just try to draw as much yeah. as we can from that well in terms of, I mean, obviously I'm a hobbyist and a substantial uh -huh. part of my audience is so we we like to translate that information from you know, what happens in the wild to try and recreate that in a, in a captive level. Um, you know, yeah. some, some of us have, some people I know have assurance colonies for different species and some people, um, just, just breed for pleasure. But regardless, we, we have a vested interest in trying to recreate that. And, and the UV, the UV angle is always an interesting one because there's a lot of claims of, of benefits and disadvantages and whatnot, but you're right. It's, it's so difficult to, to tell with a hundred percent objectivity, you know, what amount do they need and does that vary and how right. do they sense it? And, right. and that was one of the things I found most interesting about this paper was it, it just, um, you know, it, it, it found a very interesting behavior. Um, but at the same time, we, we know, we really can't conclude a hundred percent exactly what they're, you know, why they're doing yeah. it, but we know what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of the exciting part for me. It, it should be opening a lot of doors for future research that 
helps us to understand what's happening. I mean, those mechanisms could be really important for understanding what's happening in other species, including humans, and have health consequences to our well-being, um, as well as the conservation of other species. Yeah, I hate the sun because I have red hair, so the sun is like <laughs> a dirty word. <laughs> uh, but I think for your for your crowd of hobbyists or or people who are you know doing husbandry, you know it might make most sense to have a gradient available, you know, and and to see like you know maybe like humans, like some of us like to go into sun once in a while, some of us don't that are maybe in the red hair category, and get some of that sun sometimes, and then you just don't want to go back into it for a while, right? You kind of have that environmental gradient um, in the real world, and frogs are clearly interacting with that gradient in a meaningful way. And so it might not be just a, you put a bulb in and, you know, it's set at, you know, six feet from the top of the tank and you get, you know, two microwatts per centimeter squared or whatever. Um, you might have a bulb that's in, you know, length that's at an angle and you give them a little option, something like that. Yeah. I've heard a few people, uh, I know well, actually I know a few people who do offer some occasional UV lighting. Like um, I know one keeper who will use a bird light. I think it's just like kind of a low level UV in some of his Pamelio tanks and they'll actually come out and they'll hang out underneath it for a little yeah. bit of time. And uh, I know a couple other people who've, who've just had different experiences, some in captivity, some in the wild. And some people have seen them basking in different spots, but yeah, yeah. it's I, the, the gradient idea is, is, is interesting. And I think that that's one of those things that people might need to kind of work towards is just providing the choice because like, I know if you, st- yeah. if you stuck me <laughs> under full UV being under, well, under full UV in the middle of July, I'm going to look like a lobster in about 10 minutes. Yeah, so right. <laughs> I'm going to look like a strawberry frog. <laughs> but that's a good point because there's actually a, a, a growing body of evidence that frogs uh, can see UV in the, in that wavelength and that it actually might be important to mate selection. So if you're thinking about husbandry and assurance colonies and, you know, how to best improve the mating success of some of these species, UV might actually have a critical role that's, um, you know, in this circumstance, important or beneficial for females to choose a mate. In the wild, you know, too much of it is not a good thing, but it does have um, ecological importance and it might in these conditions with you all as well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And again, that that was what I found so much, so interesting about this paper was that there was just so much to take away from it, um, you know, in terms of translating that into, into captive husbandry as well. That's great. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. And I'm going to, for everyone listening, um, I'm going to include a link to Gary's website and all the papers and everything are, are listed on. Um, well, if you're cool with that anyway. <laughs> oh yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. I want to, so anyone who's, li- who's listening, I'm going to make sure that there's a link to Gary's website so you can check out and read any of the papers that we discuss as well as find out more about his, um, his additional research, which I, I actually want to, I want to move on to that now. Um, sure. We talk about toxicity in amphibians, and of course, generally, people gravitate towards the poison frogs, the dendrobatids, and you've done a great deal of research involving chemical defense in, in newts, 
And yeah. newts aren't, at least on, on my radar, weren't always the first thing to come up when it, you know, you think about um, toxins. But, um, I mean, tell us about some of your research. There, there, there is a substantial toxin in, in at least one of the uh, the genus that you study. Uh, tell us, about, tell us about it. Sure. Well, that toxin is called tetrodotoxin, which you'll often hear referred to as TTX. So, if any of you had a physiology class and had to deal with tetrodotoxin. Um, this is probably bringing back some memories, but the tetrodotoxin gets its name from pufferfish, which is tetrodontiformes. Um, they were the first species that uh, were identified to have this uh, toxin. And it was later discovered that newts actually have the same toxin. And even more interesting, uh, Many taxa, marine, terrestrial uh, species have tetrodotoxin. So a lot of my research has actually focused on how this toxin has evolved and how we think about its evolution, but also its basic ecology, what species have it, how much do they have, where is it coming from, what factors influence uh, the production of it. We actually don't know. So newts, the the genus that I work in is uh, Tarika, T-A-R-I-C-H-A. Tarika is the genus, and the species I, I focus on mostly is Tarosa. Um, funny translation, that Latin converts to English as fleshy mummy, which makes sense because if you ever pick up a newt, they kind of feel like a, a squishy, uh, mummified um, organism. Um, their skin is is pretty cold and it's leathery um, when they're terrestrial. Um, and then when they're aquatic, it changes very much. But uh, the interesting thing about this group of newts, and I should say also that many um, species of newt, including the the group I was talking about, the the red spotted newts um, east of the Rockies, um, that I grew up, they have tetrodotoxin too. S- species of European newts and Asian newts also have tetrodotoxin. So it seems to be um, uh, prevalent throughout this entire group. And uh, what's really, really crazy about this toxin is that no one knows how they have this this tetrodotoxin. In the puffer fish, uh, it's been determined that they have it because of bacteria that are symbiotic. And so the bacteria are actually on the puffer fish in its organs and produces the toxin for them. But uh, newts, we don't have a, a very clear picture of what's going on with newts. And so that's what I've been working on for the last dozen years. So what are some of the methods that you're using to to solve that problem? Because like, I'm fascinated by convergent evolution, and it just seems so, I mean, on its face, it seems to be so alien that a puffer fish has, evol- has evolved this toxin and it exists in a completely different clade of animals. I mean, for right? you to tell me multiple clades, I'm always wondering how that's possible. And I mean, what are right. some of your, like... What are some of your hypotheses and like what 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 avenues are you pursuing to, to figure that out? 
Well, you hit the nail on the head there. Like it is crazy from an evolutionary perspective that a marine organism and other marine organisms have this toxin. And then you've got terrestrial species that have the same toxin. And adelopid frogs appear to have tetrodotoxin. Um, so do um, uh, like other marine organisms like sea stars and boxfish. So this whole terrestrial marine system with tetrodotoxin is uh, strange. But in evolutionary biology, we focus on parsimony. And really what that means is like you look at like the most simple explanation as the most likely explanation, um, if especially if that's what the data do point to. And in this case, the instances of those species having bacterial symbionts is uh, very high. So many of those species I've, I've talked about all have bacterial symbionts that are shown to produce the toxin. With newts, there's emergent research uh, that myself and other colleagues are, are leading that demonstrate newts actually have bacteria on their skin also that are known to trototoxin producing bacteria. And so the, the ways we go about this research, one of the cool things uh, I developed with some colleagues was a non-destructive sampling method to take a little tiny two millimeter round piece of skin from the dorsal area of an adult newt. And then from that, we can actually pull out how much toxin is in that tissue sample and then extrapolate that to their whole body. So how much toxin they have in their whole skin. And um, there's a really awesome thing about that. One, um, we don't have to sacrifice any animals to do this. We can just go out into the streams and ponds where they are breeding and collect the tissue sample. It takes all of 30 seconds. Um, you catch them by hand or net, you take the sample, you let them go, and they heal in a few days. Um, newts have incredible regenerative capabilities, and they will, um, you know, regrow that patch of skin in, in like I said, just a few days. The other thing that really was awesome about this approach is that we had actually, my colleagues and I, so uh, Lee Katz, about 25 years ago, started putting passive integrated transponders or pit tags, we call them, into adult newts in the LA area. And uh, since then, we've probably put in over 3,000 pit tags into adult newts. And some of the cool stuff we've learned, aside from the toxicity stuff I'll get to, but they can live 20 to 30 years easily. Adults are, are living, you know, decades, which is incredible. No one knew that. Um, and then the other cool thing is with regards to the toxicity is that we found that um, we could sample individuals repeatedly, the same individuals, because they were tagged. So we could track individuals' toxin concentrations and see how they changed through time and if they did or did not change. Largely what we found is that they can cycle. They can go up and down and back up again 
within a breeding season, between breeding seasons. And that was pretty awesome to see because most people thought whatever toxin concentration a newt has is the concentration they're always going to have. And that's not the case, which as a result opens up the door for this idea that bacteria are probably involved and there's some interaction between the newt and the bacteria of how they make their toxin or how they get their toxin. That's amazing that they live that long. I, I, what, what, is, what is their life cycle like? Because I'm, I'm not a big caudate person. I actually, I kept the species when I was about 10 years old. I kept them and I kept Eastern spotted newts. That was kind of, and a couple of other like Asian species when I was a kid, cause they yeah. were just ubiquitous. You, you got them for like right. five bucks. Um, but I knew, <laughs> I really knew nothing of their, of their life history. So, I mean, if they're living that long, what's, what's their, what's their life history as, I mean, how do they start out and how do they end up as adults? Sure. So with, uh, Tarika specifically, the adults come back to streams and breed each, uh, late winter, early spring males show up first. They go through a tremendous morphological transition to uh, a breeding condition where they're, they get like really bulky. They like, um, bulk up basically. Um, they look like they've been working out on tea for a few months and their, their skin becomes super smooth Females show up like a couple of weeks later. Um, they have a elaborate mating. Um, they can form these mating aggregates. It's like a mating ball where this occurs because the sex ratio, the operational sex ratio, the number of females that come to breed to the number of males that come to breed is so skewed um, because there's like 10 males to every one female. So like, deer that bang antlers together and like that's how they compete um the way that newts compete is they all form like this massive orgy ball and (laughs) there's like 10 males writhing around in a ball with a female somewhere in there that they're trying to amplex and this will go on for weeks um there's records of mating balls um that were in the hundreds in some parts of uh, Mendocino County and North Bay area. And eventually what happens is the female selects a male. There's a whole process involved there with like probably some chemical communication where pheromones or sexual attractants more generally are being released uh, by males and females uh, take up a, a spermatophore that a male will deposit on this bed stream. Um, there's internal fertilization in the female. A couple days later, she'll lay um, eggs and the species have either egg masses. So three of our endemic species all lay egg masses. And uh, there's a fourth one that actually ranges from the Bay area to Alaska, and they lay single eggs. Those eggs, developmental times uh, vary depending on water temperature, but eventually larvae will hatch out. They develop with external gills. Um, They'll metamorphose. And then it's probably, uh, they'll be like juveniles. And it's probably three to five years before they're sexually mature. 
and then they'll return back to streams and and breed and they we have found juveniles at streams they're not sexually mature but they have returned the one thing that's important to note from a natural history perspective here is that newts have tremendous site fidelity um a real famous um amphibian ecologist herpetologist um david wake said they might as well be trees because they can always be found in the exact same spot when they're breeding they come our data show that with those pit tagged uh populations individuals are returning to the exact same breeding pool each time they come to breed um and males come every year and females come every two, three, four years. And so that's part of why there is such a skewed operational sex ratio um, because not all females are coming back to breed every year. Oh, yeah, you and that I was going to ask you that because it to me it seemed like a really, really high male to female ratio. But I guess it makes sense from an energy standpoint, right? I mean, to, to breed, mm-hmm. I mean, that must be really stressful on females to undergo that every year. Yeah, and then we don't know like what costs are associated with tetrodotoxin. So when females oviposit, their eggs have tetrodotoxin in them. And we don't know if that's like the mother is um, you know, shunting tetrodotoxin to all of those eggs. She can lay, you know, 40, 50, some species can lay hundreds of eggs. Um so, you know, if there's a cost associated with production, she may be taking all of that time because she has to put all that energy into putting tetrodotoxin into that many eggs. That's wild. What do you attribute the the site fidelity to? Because I I had this conversation with, with Mark Mandika a while back because he's working with, I think it's the frosted flatwood salamander. And they created these artificial sites, and the, I think the idea was that the salamanders would go out and they would yeah. return to the the ponds, but <laughs> they ended up coming back to those those release sites. What, what do you like? What do you attribute that that behavior to? Well, I think what's happened over evolutionary time is that the species has learned, like, okay, this is good habitat. Um, historically through millennia, this is where you go because you know there will be water, right? If if you think about California, it's a xeric or arid to semi-arid landscape most of the time. And when conditions aren't favorable, you know where to go so you have successful reproduction, right? So that behavior likely evolved from selection against individuals that didn't go back to the same spot because that habitat dried up. Um, And it's kind of a double-edged sword right now for a lot of amphibians because they're, they're returning to the same sites that maybe don't have the best conditions. I mean, we're talking about such high site fidelity that a stream can be, uh, one, two, three kilometers in length. And there might be great habitat at, you know, the upper part of it, the headwaters of it. But the newts don't go up there. They stay in maybe like a 200 to 400 meter stretch that they've always gone to. They don't venture. They're not even going to explore 
upstream to say, oh, wow, this is like better habitat. I'm going to breed here. No, that doesn't happen. <laughs> they come back to the exact same stretch every year. And it's likely because, as I said, there's been strong selection for those sites because they've been reliable. Um, and there's likely proximate mechanisms. Um, some people have implicated the vomero nasal organ as like a uh, imprinting mechanism, imprinting organism, um, organ for these organisms um, so that they know uh, what the, the sort of home habitat is. Do you think that that could be detrimental to their populations if they're not able to explore another yeah. area in the same? Okay, and that would make certain yeah, areas pretty yeah, fragile. Yeah, exactly. Right? right, exactly. You're 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 seeing right now, like what you just realized was exactly what we're experiencing with amphibians in Southern California because they're homing back to subpar habitat that likely cannot support reproduction and. This is going to be a bigger issue for a lot of places because habitat becomes subpar during drought, but it also becomes subpar after wildfire or any sort of major disturbance, flooding. And if that habitat um, can't support reproduction, the the newts are still going to come back to it. Um, and likely it's going to have consequences to the population. Yeah, I want to get into that because you also talk about in some of your research, ex extreme climate events. Yeah. But um, I just, before we get into that, I just want one more question yeah. about um, tetrodotoxin and toxicity. Mm. As far as the newts go, how does it affect the environment and other organisms? I know you've done some research with snails and parasites and uh, um, aquatic macroinvertebrates. How does that toxicity pan out in terms of affecting other organisms and, and the environment itself? Well... Newts, because they have this tetrodotoxin in their skin and it's in the water where they are breeding, um, it's not like you drink the water and you're going to die. There's not that much toxin in it. We're talking about small amounts that um, other organisms are apparently able to detect and use as a, as a cue. Um, that elicits specific behaviors. So I'll give you a couple of interesting examples to answer your question. Uh, initially, people were, uh, students uh, with Lee Katz were observing that uh, larvae of the California newt, they would flee when adults were nearby. They would flee and go seek refuge. And it turns out that that's actually because the larvae can smell tetrodotoxin. And it elicits this anti-predator response where they go and they seek refuge because adults can be cannibalistic. So it's got an interesting ecological effect within the species. For other species in the stream, one of the things we found is that it actually causes the macroinvertebrate community to move away from newts, uh, likely because they are going to consume them um, but also we found that it has consequences to uh, dragonflies, uh, predatory behavior. So before dragonflies are flying around in the sky and everybody's looking at them and, you know, they're pretty, uh, they actually are aquatic 
macroinvertebrates. So the invertebrates we're talking about are insects that are on the stream bed. There's a whole bunch of different orders. Um, but dragonflies are in the order Odonata, and they're voracious predators. Um, they do this sit-and-wait uh, ambush kind of predation, and they strike very quickly by extending their jaw, and they capture prey that way. Um, what we found through some experiments, uh, once we observed in the streams that the macroinvertebrates actually move away from tetrodotoxin from adults. Um, what we found in the lab was that if you hit uh, the the dragonfly larvae with waterborne streams of tetrodotoxin when they're about to strike, it actually slows down their strike velocities and angular movement velocities. Um, so it has consequences to how they can hunt, which makes sense why they would move away, right? Um, you don't, it's kind of like being buzzed, right? You don't want to be hunting while you're buzzed on tetrodotoxin if you're a, a dragonfly uh, <laughs> nymph. Um, and then, as you mentioned, we've done some work on invasive snails and found that it affects their foraging ability, so sort of limiting their dispersal. And we just are about to publish another paper that talks about how uh, newt uh, toxins in this in the environment having newts present actually might deter invasive crayfish from feeding on the macroinvertebrates that are in the stream and thereby um, apparently have benefits to stream biodiversity. So another reason why we want to make sure ecosystems stay intact. It's amazing how complex it is. It's a complex system, man. Yeah. yeah. And it's just one system. I mean, the beauty of, of the natural world is how much we think we know, but we really don't. It's uh, There's a lot. Yeah, every time I think I know something... I I mean, that's the thing about this show is like the, the more I, I do these interviews, the more I do this, the more I realize I, I don't know anything, you know, <laughs> everything. That's, the, that's the fun part. Yeah. Every time I think I know something, I realize I, I, I don't. What are some of the effects of um, tetrodotoxin on, on like other organisms besides like the ones that we talked about? Like, how does it affect the body? Like if, if a, a human being or, or a mammal, like a dog or a cat was to come into contact with it or, or a larger predator, how how does that affect yeah. that that organism? Like uh, anything that would prey on it, I guess potentially. Yeah. So okay, very good point here, which is prey on it versus contact. So a distinction here I want to make is that the umbrella term that we use is is poisons, um, which includes um, toxins and venoms. So venoms are different from toxins because. Uh, venoms require the apparatus to inject them. They're they're actively um, delivered, so like through fangs on a on a viper, right? Um, with newts and and other poisonous um, toxin bearing animals, the toxin is passive, so it has to be inhaled, ingested, or somehow enter the blood system. And so for us or for any animals, you know, if you came into contact with the newt and you held it or you just kind of, you know, 
uh, had a dog and stepped on it, it's not going to die, right? But ingestion of tetrodotoxin is fatal, um, very likely, and especially with newts because they have a ton of tetrodotoxin in them, generally speaking. And at least with uh, humans, uh, there's a very high probability that you will experience um, cardiac arrest and um, you'll have uh, a basically shut down of your central nervous system because the tetrodotoxin shuts down all of your neurons in your skeletal um, tissues and you'll suffocate. It's not to me, uh, a quick and painless death. It seems to me like a really horrible way to go, but, uh, there's no antidote. And that's why, like when you might remember stories of people who want to eat fugu, um, at Japanese restaurants that serve sushi and fugu is a delicacy because, you know, it has to be prepared, right? So, um, the puffer fish doesn't kill you, right? Well, it's tetrodotoxin that's killing people when they eat fugu. Um, there's different levels of poisoning, but with newts specifically, it's very likely that if anyone were to ingest a newt, um, they would, a human, they would die. Now, there's a textbook uh, story that talks about newts and garter snakes, and that garter snakes have evolved resistance to tetrodotoxin. Um, and it appears that they've evolved uh, sodium channel resistance. So that's where the toxin binds. It binds at sodium channels. And they've had these mutations at the sodium channel that basically, if you think about the sodium channel as like a, a, a wine bottle um, with a cork in it, um, when the tetrodotoxin binds to it, that's like the cork going into the wine bottle, right? And so you plug it up and you can't get the, the ions through there that you need in order to get this, the nerves to function properly. So that shuts it down. But what happens with these mutations that snakes have evolved, um, it changes the shape of the, the bottle opening. And so therefore the cork doesn't fit as tight. And so that's how they've evolved resistance is the, the binding site has a different shape. And so the toxin doesn't bind as tight. Um, but there's actually a lot of organisms that have evolved resistance to tetrodotoxin, um, including crayfish, which is kind of weird. Um, so. so it's kind of on par with, you know, I mean, in terms of lethality, anyway, it's it's kind of on par with yeah. like betrachotoxin or oh, know, for sure, yeah, that's that's yeah. It, it, you would never think about that because people always attribute, you know, dart frogs to being these extremely poisonous animals. But I mean, at least for us in here in the U.S., that you know, it's an exotic species, but we've really got something that's right, you know, literally the same, yeah. you know, the same lethality um, here in the states, which is I, I never realized that that the te- the the, um, the toxicity was that that significant. Yeah, we, so just to give you a a little bit of background on our quantitative chemistry and analytical chemistry, we have to buy milligrams of tetrodotoxin to, to, uh, do the analytical, uh, analysis of how much tetrodotoxin is in the skin. And we buy one milligram, um, powder 
that we then dissolve and make our standards for quantitation. And we have to actually go through like a, a federal like check in order to get that milligram of tetrodotoxin because of how lethal it is. There are some newts that individually contain 36 times to 50 times as much toxin in one individual. That's, that's wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And some have like little to no detectable toxin. I mean, it's variable. I should say that um, between populations and within individuals, um, there's a lot of variation, but there are places and individuals um, that tend to have a lot of toxin. Now, here's, here's a question for you. And again, I'm, I'm looking at this through the, the dendrobatid lens. Yeah. All the dendrobatids, at least to my knowledge, either lose toxicity completely or have it substantially diminish once they're in captivity for a while. Right. Does that happen with, with newts? Well, betraica toxin is produced through a biosynthetic pathway that relies on precursor molecules from their diet. So if they don't have the right food source, then they don't produce the toxin. But... As far as we can tell, newts don't need a food source. So it kind of um, makes questionable this biosynthetic pathway possibility with newts. And the, the idea that they would lose it in captivity, pufferfish will lose it in captivity if they don't have a toxin-laced uh, diet. So if they're not eating something that has the tetrodotoxin in it. But uh, newts don't appear to lose it in captivity. In fact, we've actually been able to induce newts to increase toxin concentration in captivity. <laughs> wow. Which is pretty wild. Yeah, that's yeah. that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So uh, one of your papers also, I mean, I, I, I know we wanted to get back on uh, climactic events that was really interesting though. Oh, yeah. I'm glad we I'm glad we sidebarred because that was fascinating. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Yeah. Twelve years of work right there. Yeah. That's <laughs> no, that's that's very impressive. I mean, people who are who are interested in, in amphibian toxicity, this is definitely the, the route to go down. It's it's more interesting to me than totally. dark frogs because they lose it and they lose it in captivity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So uh, extreme climactic events. What would be considered an extreme climactic event and how does it affect the California newt? Yeah, well, let's talk about extreme climate events. So what are extreme climate events? Well, they're events that occur that are outside of historical um, norms. And so for me, one of the things I was interested in in the last decade was, well, we had this crazy drought that's um, the peak of it really hit in 2015, 2016. And I thought, this is unreal, like how not only dry it was, but how hot it was too. And those things worked together to create a really extreme environment for newts. And what I mean by that is the extreme conditions were that those temperatures and the reduction to rainfall were way outside of what we've seen in the last 100 years. So that's the extreme nature of it. In, 
in statistics, we talk about standard deviations, and standard deviations take into account all of the variation that you see within a set of data, right? So I'm going to go a little statistics uh, route here for a second just to say that when you look at the 100-year average and the deviation values for the annual mean temperature and annual precipitation total um, in these California breeding uh, populations in Southern California and Northern California too, for that matter, during that drought period, that peak, we were four to five to seven uh, standard deviations out of our 100-year uh, average. I mean, that's huge. You're basically, like for us, going to, um, you know, the driest conditions that have been observed um, in, in very long periods, um, at least with regards to since we've recorded these weather conditions, so the last 100 years. That's what makes it extreme. And and what was also extreme about it, too, is that it was the double dose of temperature and drought. So they combined. And what's important to note here is that all of the species that have evolved in California have evolved to deal with drought. It's part of our environmental legacy of California. But what species haven't dealt with in evolutionary time is the, the combined th threat of drought with heat waves that were, you know, very far from what was normal for the last 100 plus years. And so when you think about what's happening, these species haven't evolved the adaptations to deal with a, a rate of temperature increase and severity of drought that occurs that quickly. We're talking about years, not decades or hundreds or thousands of years, you know. Um, so that's the that's the breakdown of of the extreme nature of these climate events. Yeah, it was one of those things I was always curious about because you think about, I guess, I guess, I mean, the point at which people kind of became interested, which I would say would be within what, maybe like the last 50, 80 years or so where people have actually kind of started looking at these things versus, you know, all the, the, the years and years where people really weren't paying attention. And you, you bring up a really interesting dynamic is that it's happening faster and more significantly than it ever has even before people were actually paying closer attention to it. Yeah, and certainly researchers in the paleo climate or paleogeology, you know, have have been doing work to understand what climate was like, you know, thousands of years ago to millions to tens of millions of years ago, right? Um and even with like more recent time, I mean, the drought conditions we experienced in California during the 2000 teens, nothing like that had been seen for the last 1200 years. Um, it was more extreme than the last uh, drought that occurred that long ago. So uh, people are certainly paying more attention now because I think what's happening, Dan, is that 
climate change is becoming palpable. Like we're actually like everybody was having like existential crises about it. Right. Or generally speaking, people were, and now it's actually at the front door and it's palpable, like wildfires, like um, flooding, um, heat waves, days, number of days that are above 120 degrees, you know, like it's, it's feeling very real. And I think that's why generally speaking, the public is more dialed in and aware and paying more attention, which is a good thing because we all have to work together to come up with solutions. Yeah. Plus I feel like nowadays the global community or however you want to call it, I mean, information travels so fast. So, yeah, I mean, I'm here in, in New York, whatever happens in New Zealand, I can find out what happens in New Zealand in a matter of seconds. So it's, it's right. It's so much more easily observed now by people all across the planet as opposed to, you know, I guess totally. you know, 50, a hundred years ago where you'd have to wait for, you know, wait for a letter in the mail or. Well, shoot, even 10 or 15 years ago, even then when you, you didn't have social media and you didn't have phones that you could readily see news and get news, um, the ubiquity of, of these devices and media is really changing how we see the world and, and feel, you know, the, the change that's happening globally. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, we're kind of winding down to the end, but I wanted to talk about your outreach efforts and you do a substantial amount of outreach, which I, I mean, I think that stuff like that is very important because it's like, no matter, no matter what you get across to somebody about any subject, whatever is just like, why should I care? You know what I mean? Like if you want to really be interested in something, the best place you can start off is just caring about it. So like what, what is your outreach involved in? And like, what are, what are some of your goals and what are some of the things that you've accomplished so far? Yeah. Well, I think what you said, you know, how do you get people to care is by, uh, getting them to know about something. Right. And for me, it's like, how do you really get people to care? You show them and you have them realize like something is unique. Right. So, um, people who get into birding, like have this, um, epiphany where they realize like, oh, a bird is not a bird is not a bird. Right. Because there's, yeah, birds do the same thing. They fly around and they make sounds and, um, they have wings, but those are all distinct species. And the same is true with amphibians, um, especially newts and salamanders, uh, helping people to realize the distinctions be- as as general as this is between like a newt and a lizard, like that. No, they are not very closely related. Um, one is an amphibian and one is a reptile. Um, and what that difference is, why are they different um, taxonomic groups? Right. I love teaching people. I love you know, helping to spread the information. So for me, outreach has been a a joy and meeting new people, learning what they think about and how they see the world. Because I think the only way that we can win with conservation priorities is by listening to one another. And if I understand what people don't uh, see the same way as me or what they're uh, concerns are or misunderstandings, 
that helps me do my job better, right? That helps me achieve more. And so outreach is really, in in my case, a win-win. And I've done that through working with docents, working with undergraduate students, teaching field courses, um, leading walks in, in uh, preserves, uh, helping students get involved with research projects, uh, outreach at museums. We just have to do these things um, in whatever field you're in, whatever you're passionate about. Passing that knowledge along is so crucial. And that's really what brings me a lot of joy at the end of the day. Because let's be honest, you read my paper, but um, there are very few people who go into the scientific literature and read those papers. And it's all about those conversations instead. So that was why I was very eager to uh, be hosted on your show and talk about the research, because that's where it's going to be translated into meaningful um, bits for folks so that they can think about the world a little differently and see what's important. Well, it's been my pleasure to have you on. I really want to thank you for taking the time to share everything with us. I, 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 I read this stuff, you know what I mean? I'll, I'll, I mean, sometimes I just read the abstract, but like, I'll, I mean, sure. I, to be honest, I, I read everything through on your website and you've got quite a few papers and there's a lot of interesting yeah. topics, but um, you're right. Sometimes you have to put that into a different format to make it accessible for everybody. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't like to spare details. You know, I think that details yeah. are important and details are important. Getting that into outreach is just, you know, such a, it's, it's, it's a good feeling, you know, when you get, when yeah somebody picks up on something that I don't know, you might think is uh, a little over their head, you know, it's always a good feeling. Right. And also being able to show them in the habitat. I'm fortunate here to be working in California where my study system is, which means I can connect with a lot of local folks and actually take them to these sites and show them exactly what I'm talking about. And that's a that's a really nice interaction because then they can ask questions on the fly there. So I value it. I I value people's engagement. And I, I should say that if you put my uh, website address up there or my email address, um, it's on there as well. Feel free to reach out with questions or if you'd like to discuss something else, drop me a line. I'll tell you, one last thing I want to add is yeah, you made your papers accessible, which is great. Yeah. And a lot of times I'll, in my research for the show, I, I, I skim through a lot of different papers trying to find potential guests and potential topics. And a lot of the papers just aren't accessible. You either have to subscribe yeah. to the journal or they want you to pay for it. And you've got... I mean, I'm I'm not counting everyone, but you've got close to a dozen, if not more, papers, just as PDFs on your website for anyone to look at. And like to me, that yeah. that's that in and of itself is a is great outreach because, I mean, if someone wants to read a paper, you know, that person's not necessarily going to want to register with a journal or or pay a fee, you know, for the yeah. download. And I mean, right. this is this is this is great. The fact that this is accessible to everyone is, um, I mean, yeah. I, I think this is I think what you've done is 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 amazing. Great. Happy I could do it. Yeah. All right. Keep reading them. <laughs> yeah. As long as they keep coming out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, Deal. I, I also, I just, I do want to give an honorable mention to to Dr. Katz. I know you'd, you'd mentioned him yeah. um, earlier. 
uh, from what I understand, he he does a tremendous amount of work too. And uh, I, I corresponded with him very very briefly um, developing this topic. So I just if he's listening, I just want to say you know thank you to you know Dr. Katz as well. Yeah, well, I just want to also add to that and say thank you to all of my collaborators and all of the folks along the way that made this science possible from my colleagues and peers at UCLA to my advisors, um, David Green and Brad Schaefer and Tom Smith and Greg Grether, all of these folks along the way. And now all the great people that I get to work with in, in my new post at UC Davis, which um, is just as exciting. And uh, I'm just really thankful for all of the folks that have helped me along the way. And so uh, I try to pay that back by helping those that need help. So if there's a young enthusiast out there looking to get into research with uh, amphibians or herps generally, but mostly I'm about amphibians, uh, don't be shy. Drop me a line and and ask how you can get involved. That's great. Great. All right, everyone. Again, I want to thank Gary for taking the time to really cover a lot of ground with this. I, I this was a great show. I, I learned so much and uh, it was really great of him to take the time to come and talk to us tonight. So again, everyone, I'm going to leave the, uh, I'm going to include the link to uh, Gary's website. Be sure to go check out the papers and the outreach and whatnot. And um, yeah, I, I enjoyed this one. I hope you guys did too. Uh, again, I want a big thanks to Gary for coming on and sharing with us. And I want to thank all of you for listening and I will catch up with you guys again next time.